Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast ministry of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Today's message is a special guest speaker all the way from Argentina. Paul Wright is one of the missionaries we support here at Bethesda Church. You will hear him give a great message on the importance of the atonement. The title of his message is The Substitute. Not only does Paul give us a great overview of the atonement, but he also helps us understand how that affects us today. We pray that you are challenged by what Paul has to say today. Thank you very much. Wes introduced me as as Roy's substitute. You know, when I was in college and high school, that was the time when we all got ready when a sub was there with our spit wads and paper airplanes. And I don't know if any of you are getting those ready now, but... It's good for us to be here. I'm very grateful for the warm welcome that you have given to us. Um, I'm not going to be giving a report this morning. There's a lot of good things that have happened in the last four years since we've been here at Bethesda. Uh, Good things are happening in the Bible Institute. My wife's ministry, ministering those who have suffered abuse, has also got some good things to share. And in addition, since the last time we were here, we have gained three beautiful, the most beautiful grandkids in the world. We have to ask Grandma for pictures, though. And, but what we're going to do is I'm going to invite you to stop by the table in the foyer at the end, and we'll be glad to share with you a lot of those beautiful blessings that God has given to us in the ministry. What I'd like to do this morning is to share with you something that God has put on my heart. You know, many times when... It's not until we are face-to-face with death that we really recognize and realize what our purpose in life is. It might not be our own death. It might not be our own mortality that we're facing, but it might be the death of someone else that wakes something up inside of us and said, wait a minute, I have to take stock of what I am doing here on this earth. Why am I here? What am I doing? What am I living for? It's a very significant question and one that Perry Heath had to deal with a long time ago. Perry Heath was born in the prairies of Illinois, 70 miles west of Chicago, back when all that was there was just fields and fields of grassland. When he was 15, his family moved in covered wagon to, to Wisconsin, just a few miles from the Mississippi River, where his father homesteaded. It was a, a land of tall forests, wolves, some Sioux Indians, and, and uh, a lot of opportunity. When Perry was a teenager, his father died, leaving his mother a widow with nine children. Perry was the next to the last. When he was 19, in April 15, 1861, President Abraham Lincoln issued a call for volunteers to put down the rebellion in the southern states, what we know as the war between the states. And Perry, with all of his energy and enthusiasm of youth, went to join the 2nd Wisconsin Regiment. Well, the 2nd Wisconsin Regiment played a very significant role in the Civil War. But, before I get into that, let me mention that Perry's mother, a widow, and she... Perry was only one of the oldest of the two boys left on the farm. She needed him on the farm. He was 19. And according to the U.S. law at that time, she could, and she did, raise the $300 needed to go and pay to the federal government, and as well, she found a substitute to serve in his place. Isn't that incredible? That law is not 
not, not in, it's not going right now. But at that point in time, if you could come up with a substitute and $300, you could avoid the draft. Well, interestingly enough, his mother probably mortgaged the farm, worth one-third of the value of the family farm, found a substitute, and brought Perry home. A second Wisconsin along with two other regiments, formed what they called the Iron Brigade, and they were shipped to the Shenandoah Valley in, in Virginia and fought in the bloodiest battles of the Civil War, First and Second Battle of Bull Run, Antietam, Chancellorsville, Fredericksburg, and in Gettysburg, in the first day of Gettysburg, the regiment lost 70% of its personnel, wounded and dead. 70%. Shortly after the Battle of Gettysburg, the regiment was mustered out, and they all went home. And much to Perry's surprise, his substitute didn't return. It marked his life. He never forgot the fact that somebody else died in his place. He never forgot the fact that it could have been him lying there dead on the field of battle. Well, you know, you and I also have someone who died in our place. His name is Jesus Christ. The Bible says over and over and over that Christ died for us. His death and resurrection is probably the, one of the best documented facts of ancient history. And I'm not going to go into that, even though it's a fascinating study. But the question I want us to look at this morning is, what does Jesus' death mean to us? Over the last 2,000 years, there have been a number of theories, theological ideas, that theologians have come up with to explain the meaning of Christ's death. One of the first theories that came up was the idea that, based on Jesus' own words, that he came to be a ransom for many, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. They said, well, since Jesus' death was a ransom, the ransom had to be paid to somebody, right? So it must have been paid to Satan, in fact, some theologians went so far as to say that God set a trap for Satan and had Jesus die and then had him rise again to fool him. Well, you know, that, that goes beyond, that speculation and goes beyond what the biblical text says. And in addition, I feel uncomfortable with that because it kind of sets God up as a, as a cheat and a double-crosser. That, that puts a stain on his character. And God, the Bible does not present God in that light. Another idea is the idea that Jesus' death was an example. And indeed, the Apostle Peter says that Jesus set us example, set, uh, Jesus is our example that we would follow in his steps. The difficulty with this idea is that it seems to assume that we as human beings are morally capable of being as good and as perfect as Jesus is. Jesus made no secret of the fact that he was and is the Son of God. And he is perfect. He committed no sin. It's very clear, the Bible says, that he committed no sin. But are we capable of doing that? Chances are, each one of us committed at least one sin this morning before we even got here. So, the Bible also says, Romans chapter 3, that there is no one righteous. And a verse that probably many of us have memorized, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's another idea, the idea of satisfaction. It kind of grows out of the, the medieval idea that our sin offended God's honor. And that God sent Jesus to die so that he could, as if we were in a 
a dueling situation with two guys back to back with dueling pistols. Jesus set Jesus up so he could defend God's honor against our sin. Well, it's an interesting idea, and for those people who live in cultures that are based in shame, for example, in the Mideast and in the Far East, that idea is really attractive. But the fact of the matter is the Bible says that it's not God's honor that was offended, it was God's justice. Romans chapter 1 says that the, in the gospel, the justice of God is demonstrated. That's an important part, point that we dare not fall, dare not let, leave behind. A fourth idea is the fact that uh, some theologians come up with many, many years ago and is the idea that Jesus' death is a moral influence. And the fact that, you know, if we understand God's love, if we really understand God's love, that will motivate us to love others and other people will be impacted by God's love. Now that is true, but it's not just God's love that changes people's lives. This idea has been resurrected of late, those uh, theologians that are involved in the emerging church movement. And the idea is that as we communicate God's love, we eliminate people's fear and ignorance, and they need to be educated about God's love, and so that solves a problem. Well, there's a few things missing in that idea. The concept that I would like to suggest that covers all the theological facts and covers all the bases is the idea that Jesus died as our substitute. Now, there are several arguments in favor of this. First of all, if you read the Old Testament, we discover that right from the very beginning, God set up a set of, of, of sacrifices for mankind. In fact, from the Garden of Eden, God clothed Adam and Eve with, uh, with uh, the skins of a lamb, probably teaching them the whole concept of blood sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 17, God told Moses, the life of the blood is in the flesh and I put it on the altar for your sins. And in the Old Testament, when an Old Testament wanted, uh, person wanted to worship God, he'd have to bring a lamb to the altar and put his hands on the lamb. Now, why did he do that? He'd have to put his hands on the head of the lamb and then the high priest would, would cut the lamb's throat, drain the blood out, and they'd offer the lamb on the altar. Why did the worshiper have to put his hands on the lamb? That was to say that the worshiper was saying that this lamb is my substitute and going in my place. That was a very significant symbol for the Old Testament worshipers. And so the lamb died in that person's place and the animal sacrifices covered temporarily for the moment the wrath of God. So that when Jesus came on the scene in John chapter 1, and John the Baptist saw him, and he looked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, he didn't say cover, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' blood took the penalty of sin away and took sin away for all of us. Now that's very clear. We're, we're going through this. There's a number of other passages on the screen. If you're taking notes, you can write them down and look them up when we get home. We don't have time to look at them, I'll look them all up this morning. There's another argument, and forgive me for being technical this morning, but it's really important. I don't normally do this, but there's a number, two Greek words that are translated for the word for. A New Testament was written in the Greek language, and in the Greek New Testament, there are two words that are translated for. When we say Christ died for us, there are two words, two prepositions that are often used. One is the word hyper. 
And that preposition includes the idea of substitution, but the problem with that is, is it also means, it could mean, it could be translated on behalf of, that Jesus died on my behalf. It doesn't require his death, it doesn't require his substitution, but it allows for it. Now, what's curious to me, and here's where I'd like to open your Bibles, if, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. This is a verse that the kids in Awana have memorized, I'm sure. It's worth reading again. But interestingly enough, even though this preposition is used when it talks about Christ dying for us, the concept of substitution is right, in, right there. For example, verse 6, And while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For hardly will one die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's pretty clear from the context that the idea of substitution is here. He died in our place as our substitute. There's another Greek preposition that's translated for in other contexts, and this preposition always carries the, constant, the idea of substitution. Always, always, always. Here we can look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. I like to start with verse 5. Beth and I live in a Roman Catholic country, and we talk to Roman Catholics about their relationship with God. Uh, verse 5 is a very significant uh, concept because it talks about Jesus being the one and only mediator between God and man. He says, verse 5, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Who gave himself as a ransom for all. There it is. Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. The idea of him being our substitute is right there. Now, Jesus died for us. Jesus died for you as your substitute. It's very clearly illustrated in Isaiah chapter 53. This is also an incredible passage. It's worth reading, worth reviewing, worth memorizing. Chapter 53. Verse 5 and 6 says, And he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep who have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You can't escape the idea of Jesus dying as our substitute in this passage. It's there. It's all through the Bible. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that Jesus died as a propitiation for our sin. Now, that's a huge word. I can have a hard time pronouncing it. What does that mean? It means that Jesus died as the complete satisfaction for the justice of God. God was totally, totally satisfied with Christ's death on, as our substitute as your substitute and as my substitute God's satisfied with that his holy righteousness justice is satisfied with that now what are we going to do with that information what does Jesus' death mean to us well let's 
First look at Perry Heath for a moment. After the war was over, he decided to get married to a 16-year-old neighbor named Jenny Briggs. Together they had eight children. Jenny died giving birth to the last of them. Then he remarried another neighbor named Elizabeth Malice, and they had one more son. And he died at the ripe old age of 95. Perry was well known in the community as a hard-working farmer, dairy farmer, I might add, hard-working farmer, lifelong member of the Methodist Church, and a practical joker. He loved life. He really did. But he never forgot the fact that a man died on the field of battle for him. This impacts me personally because if that substitute hadn't died for Perry Heath, I wouldn't even be here this morning because Perry Heath was my great-great-grandfather. I'm pretty sure that if you look at your own story, the story of your family, your parents, your grandparents, you can find a lot of examples of things where God has brought, tied all the strings together, either causing some things to happen or causing that some things wouldn't happen, to bring you to this place at Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota this morning. I'm reasonably sure that God has a reason for all that. What it might be, I don't know. But the, what we're looking at this morning is, what are you going to do with Christ's death for you? He died as your substitute. Well, there's a number of options. Let's look at them this for a little bit. One option is to ignore it. You could sing like Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley, I did it my way. And you can live like that. And ignore it. You can. But one of these days, each one of us is going to have to stand before Jesus. And we're going to have to look him in the eye and say, It didn't matter to me what you did for me. I can't do that. I realize that Jesus died for me and I have to respond in a different way. I can't just ignore it. A lot of people do. But I don't think a person in good conscience can. There's another option. We can feel guilty about it, unworthy of it. A number of years ago, there was a very popular movie called Saving Private Ryan. Many of you have seen it. Incredible movie from a number of levels. But it's a story of a, a platoon of soldiers that went to rescue a man who was on the front in the early days of the, after the Normandy invasion of the Second World War. And they have to find Ryan to return him to his mother because he's the last surviving male heir and President Roosevelt has said, you know, we're not going to eliminate all the male heirs of a family. We're going to keep the family at least surviving in some way. And so they had to go rescue him. They finally locate him. And when he finally locate him, they have to defend a, a bridge from a German attack. And in the attack, the entire platoon dies, except for Ryan, the man they were trying to save. And Sergeant Miller, played by Tom Hanks, in a very moving scene, he's sitting on the bridge that they just defended near the end of the movie, and he tells Ryan in his last words, now, earn this. As if to say, we died for you, now you better earn it with the rest of your life. At the end of his life, really in 
the entire movie is a flashback to this scene. At the end of his life, Ryan goes back to Normandy and he sees the sea of white crosses in the graves. And he's overcome with emotion and he kneels by the grave and he asks his wife the question, am I a good man? Did I deserve this? And he's not sure of the answer. He's not sure that the life that he's already lived was worth the death of so many men. And when we look at the death of Christ, we can look at the death of Christ and say, I don't, I'm not worthy of this. We can celebrate the Lord's Supper and meditate on his death and feel really miserable. I've done so many terrible things. I don't deserve this. And we can really grovel in the dirt on this. Does that please God? I don't think so, but there's a lot of religious people that try to earn God's blessing by being good. They try to earn his death by what they do. My friends, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Because when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, God offers us eternal life as a gift. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. There's no way we can earn it or deserve it. And Jesus died as our substitute so we could take God's free gift of eternal life and then live accordingly. There's another movie, of course, it's a long time ago. This dates me, of course. Chariots of Fire. Many of you have seen that movie. It's a story of Eric Little, British-Scottish athlete who ran in the 1924 Olympics. True story, incredible story. Ran in the 1924 Olympics and won several gold medals. He trained for the 100 meters and they scheduled the 100 meter race on Sunday. And he said, I'm a Christian. I want to observe the Lord's day. I want to worship God and rest on that day. I'm not going to run. And the Prince of Wales came in and said, Eric, you've got to run for our country. You have to defend our honor. And said, Eric says, God's more important to me. I'm not going to run. I'll run on Monday, but not on Sunday. Nobody convinced him otherwise. He didn't run on Sunday. On Monday, they set him up for a race that he hadn't trained for. And he was in the starting blocks, and someone got through security and handed him a little note just before the gun was to go off. Nowadays, this wouldn't happen, but they hand him a little note, and the note said, he who honors God, God will honor. He took the note, put it in his pocket, and ran and won the gold. Eric Little had an incredible style. I mean, nobody could imitate it. I don't even think they did it in the movie. He'd run with his chest struck out, and he'd run like this, but he'd run faster than anybody else. Incredible runner. Eric said about his style, he says, I don't know why I run like that. I run because I enjoy it, and I run because when I run, I can feel God's pleasure. He could sense God's smile upon his running. Eric was a Christian who lived for God. And even if he was running, even if he was studying and doing his homework, he was a university student at the time, studying in medical school. Whatever he did, he knew that he was doing it for God. And that's an incredible application to our lives. You know, it doesn't matter if you're changing diapers or changing the oil. If you're doing it for God, God is pleased. And if you're studying and doing your homework, or if you're plowing ground, or it doesn't matter what you do, if you're doing it for God, 
God's got a huge grin on his face, and he's saying, hey, I like this. This is good. Eric knew what it was like to live for God. In fact, later he studied to be a doctor, graduated from Edinburgh University, and went to China as a missionary. He died in a Japanese concentration camp and this just before the end of the Second World War. But he lived his life for Jesus, and that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference, doing it for Jesus. Let me ask a question. What are you living for? Let me ask another question. Who are you living for? Are you living for yourself, or are you living for Jesus? That question is the dividing line between making life worthwhile or not. And even if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, it may be that you're still living for yourself, or you have some other goals that are yours, but God's not involved. Maybe God's not involved in your business, or God's not involved in your family, and you're doing it just for your own personal goals and satisfaction. That's not living it for Jesus. God wants to be involved in your business. God wants to be involved in your family. And let me say this. God wants you to be involved in his plan around the world. Some of you realize that and are living like that. But perhaps there are some of you who are not. And what I want to communicate this morning is that no matter what got us to this point in Bethesda Church and here on South Dakota this morning, from here, I would like to invite you to live for Jesus. My first question is, if you don't know Jesus, you need to come to know him. You need to trust him as your savior. And if you don't know him, come and see me after the service. Talk to Pastor Burkett. And with joy, we'll be glad to tell you how you can know Jesus. And if you do know Jesus, now is the time to start doing everything that you do for him. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.